Welcome to the Glasgow Museum's podcast. For this episode, we go on a journey into the topic of tartan as we listen to Glasgow Museum's Research Manager for Art, Rebecca Quinton, and University of Glasgow's lecturer in the history of art, Dr Sally Tuckett, discuss its fascinating history. This really is the most fantastic portrait of a young Lord Mungo Murray, who was the fifth son and eighth child of John Murray, second Earl of Attle. And I can't believe he's only 15 years old. I know, that just, that completely blows my mind. He's, he's, it's such a confident and assured portrait and pose that it, it's incredible. 15, can you imagine? I know. And you can see it coming out of that long line of these swagger poses of the 17th century, going right the way back with all the Stuart kings. Definitely. The, the, the full, he's, he's facing head on, but the head is slightly turned. He's got his arm confidently placed on his waist. He's, he's, he's ready to go. He's out for a day's fun hunting. And all these fantastically strong diagonals, the gun, his long gun going on one side, his arm with the tartan plaid over it, giving you a diagonal on the other side. It's a fantastic composition. It is. It's a really fantastic portrait. And the, the colours as well, it's so bright and it's so clear. Everything is really, really crisp in this. What's really important, isn't it, historically, as being an early example of Highland dress? Yeah, so aside from him just looking absolutely brilliant, the, the significance from a Scottish perspective is that, as far as we are aware, this is the first full-length portrait of the complete Highland dress. We have other examples of um, visual evidence of Highland dress, but they tend to be etchings or um, perhaps illustrations in manuscripts. So this formal full-length portrait is really important in the history because it's, it's a key marker in how we understand the evolution of Highland dress. So from how we get from this to what we have today. So for those of you who aren't sat at home looking at a picture of this, should we just go through what he's wearing? Yes, let's do that. So on his head, two Scottish bonnets, but with the most fantastic little plume of ostrich feathers on one side. And below that, a crisp white linen shirt that has been trimmed with lace. And over that is this very interesting doublet. By this stage, it's quite late actually to still be wearing the doublet. You'd expect most men at this point in the 1680s to have moved over to Charles II's new vest. But I guess maybe it probably worked better with the plaid below. Yes, you would think there's, pos there's possibly a practical element to it because the, the waistcoats of, that Charles II made so popular were a little bit longer, weren't they? They came, at this point, they were slightly below the waist. So there might be a practicality element in this because, as you can see, below the waistcoat and the shirt, he has this huge, massive material, which is the Fila Moor, the, the great plaid or um, belted plaid. And it's just a, a huge amount of fabric. So might not actually look that good with a waistcoat over it at this stage. They might not have quite figured out how to have put it all together. Yes, and while we're talking about it being more practical, it certainly isn't the most practical of materials um, in terms of its consumption and use of embroidery. Yes, wool, very sturdy, hard wearing, but then it's been covered with embroidery on every single slash of the pane doublet and sleeves that looks like it's been embroidered in silver and silver gilt thread, very luxurious, and reminds me of the wonderful wedding suit in the V&A that was made for James Duke of York when he got married a decade earlier in 1673. Yeah, it's a huge um, statement of wealth, isn't it? It's, it's a, 
it's not that that element of it is not practical but, and that's what i love about this because it's mixed in with highland dress which in essence is a very practical functional garment and um, the great plate that he's wearing is essentially just one long piece of fabric or sorry two long pieces of fabric that have been stitched together um, they could go up to about five meters in length and so no tailoring was required they're very simple to make your status would have been um, expressed through the amount of colors that you had and the intricacy of the weaving pattern and as you can see on this one this is this is an intricate pattern it's um, quite small checks there's lots of different colors coming in there uh, it, it looks like there's possibly red, perhaps even purple, yellow, um, some black, really, really bringing out this intricate pattern. Um, so not, it's practical, but he's also, along with the, with the doublet, really showing off with what he's wearing. Yes, and sometimes people tend to think these muted shades were probably just people using the local lichens and other natural dyes, and therefore not necessarily expensive. But some of these more subtler colours may well have been imported luxury dyes. So an expense there that is lost to modern eyes. Yeah, absolutely. And particularly if that is red in there, there's a good chance that that's actually cochineal, which would have come from South America. So, you know, really expensive red dye to bring in there. And red in tartan is very much a status symbol. It's because it's an expensive colour to produce. Um, if you see a portrait with red tartan, that's a status symbol right there. And that probably leads us very, uh, very nicely onto his fantastic red stockings. Oh, they're brilliant, aren't they? Um, and I love how uh, it looks like these are, so the, it looks like these are woven pieces of fabric rather than knitted. And it looks on his, on his leg that's extending towards the gun. It looks like you can see how they've been stitched together at the back. It's such an amazing detail. You wonder if John Michael Wright appreciated how good his paintings were going to be for future dress historians. <laughs> I, I hope he knows now somehow. <laughs> the level of detail he provides is incredible. Yes, I think you can tell that he was the son of a tailor. He has certainly such a good eye for depicting the detail of the clothing in the majority of his amazing portraits. So there's quite a lot of folding going on with this plaid. Do you want to just talk us through a little bit about how you would have worn this? How on earth would you take a huge expanse of cloth and arrange it in a way that was easy to put on the body? So there are some, there's, there's still some debates about how you would have done this. Um, as I said, it's, it's, it could be up to about five meters in length and it would probably be just under a couple of meters wide. So it's, it's a significant piece of material and it's obviously, it's wool too. So there's, it's, it's not necessarily as um, malleable as something like cotton or linen. So one of the theories is that for a man like this to get it look like this you would you'd probably be helped to get dressed by somebody being with you you would have an attendant perhaps who would help wrap it around your waist um but another idea is that it the the cloth could be laid out on the ground um with a belt underneath it and the idea is that you kind of wrap yourself up in it um and then you have the belt around your waist so it's it's kilted um, we're not quite at the kilt yet, but it's, it's kilted around the waist um, in the skirt-like fashion that you can see here. And then the remaining fabric is draped over the arm as Mung Mungo Murray displays so fantastically here. 
and you can use that fabric to protect yourself against the elements so you could unfold it a bit more and have it around both shoulders you can tuck it over the arm if you wanted to you could just sort of leave it dangling behind you but that seems a bit extravagant and a bit wasteful um so it, it's not quite clear how exactly they put it on there is some evidence that um plates could have had belt loops you can just see his his belt at his waist there um, and there is some evidence that suggests some of them would have had loops in them to keep the belt in place so then that helps hold it all together um, but perhaps one of the ways to think about it is it, like it's not too dissimilar to a sari in the way that that is wrapped around the body and um, could be worn in multiple different ways depending on the wearer and the fabric um, the occasion for a very simple thing it's very versatile yes and I suppose when you're spending that much money on the expense of having a good quality cloth and with that many colors and dyes that you could afford to to then have something so versatile must have been made it kind of a bit more of a good investment yeah I would think so certainly for for this garment that he's wearing here but again the beauty of Highland dress is that if you weren't Mungo Murray's status and you didn't have his kind of money, you could still wear an approximation of this. It's just your tartan might perhaps have less colors. It might be not as expensive. It might not be as fine a wool, um, but essentially you would still have a similar kind of silhouette. You would still have a great plaid. You could still wrap it around your waist and then drape it over your shoulders. Yes, and looking at it again, you can really sort of kind of really looking into the detail. You can even see, as well as a belt, he has what even looks like a drawstring that maybe helped him with that kilting. Yes, yes. So again, it's 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 thought that there are ways that you could get that sort of pleated effect um, that that modern kilts have today. But it, it's it's looser. It's not as it's not necessarily stitched in like a kilt would be today and that's what makes this portrait so exciting because it really does show the evolution of highland dress and um, this is he's not wearing a kilt it looks like it's a kilt but it's not it's all one piece of fabric and it's not until about about 40 years later do we start to see references to a kilt being a distinct garment he's still wearing a great plaid and the, the kilt itself references don't really appear until about the 17 20s and then regularly not until about the 1740s onwards so it's it's a it's quite a slow evolution into how the kilt appears as we would know it um and there are various stories about how this this happened so one of the stories of how the kilt came to be um is relates to a man called thomas rawlinson who was up in inverness and he was actually an englishman by all accounts and the story goes is that he saw people wearing the great plaid and he thought it was slightly cumbersome. Some people say that he might have even been wearing it himself and he found it inconvenient and it got in the way of what he wanted to do. So he effectively chopped it in half and wrapped the bottom part around his waist and produced the kilt and then had the plaid on the shoulder still. So he, he now had two pieces of fabric um, to work with rather than one. There's not very much evidence to support this at all um, and the thought that the Scottish national dress has been created by an Englishman it can be slightly galling and I think it doesn't give credit to the fact that um, human beings in general can be very innovative and there's no reason to suggest why Highlanders might not have seen at some point before Thomas Rawlinson that having two pieces of fabric rather than one could be convenient for certain occasions. Um, so it's it's not really clear 
when it happens, but like all dress um, evolutions and dress changes, it's pro it was probably a much slower process rather than it being one person coming along and changing it forever. Um, but whether it started with Rawlinson or not, this was the early 18th century. So you start, this is at this point, you start to see Highland dress being talked about more and more outside of the Highland region. So before then, hasn't it, it's very much in the north of Scotland and a regional dress rather than a national dress. Yeah, so the north and west. So you, it's, it's gen, it was generally associated with the Highland line, um, the Highlands beyond the Highland line, if that makes sense. Um, the upland regions of Scotland, um, Lowlanders, them, the most distinctive dress in Lowlands, they would wear a plaid too, but it tended to be a black and white check rather than the colourful thing that you see here and you would still have typical dress underneath so like breeches jackets waistcoats um, whereas in the highlands it was the great plaid um, if you were particularly wealthy and rode horses a lot you might even have trues which are the all-in-one um, stockings and breeches made of made of tartan as well and again there are some fantastic portraits of elite men wearing these garments too um, so it's a very distinctive place, a very distinctive dress associated with a particular place until around the 18th century when things start to shift. Yes, and I suppose then you're getting politics getting involved, it might be being picked up by either side, actually both sides during the Jacobite campaigns. And so it gets quite a mixed message, doesn't it? The way that it is used during that period, it's not such a clear signifier as to your allegiance during the 18th century? Yeah, oh, it's, it's murky. It gets very, very murky. Um, and particularly during the Jacobite rising of 1745, uh, Prince Charles Edward Stuart, Bonnie Prince Charlie, to popular history, he decrees that his army should wear Highland dress. Jacobites have a strong support base in the Highlands. And Bonnie Prince Charlie's Highland army, as it becomes called, does draw on a lot of clans from this region. Um, we now know that this wasn't exclusively his support base and his army actually included people from all over Scotland, even England and Ireland. So um, to call it the Highland army is a bit misleading, um, but he decrees that the army should wear Highland dress, which at this point possibly involved the kilt, depending on um, who you were looking at, who you were talking to, but would have involved tartan, plaid, um, it would have looked quite fantastic. There's not really much indication as to why he chose this, but we can speculate that this is possibly because this is a distinct regional dress. It stands out and it would have looked very different to any government forces and the slightly more regimented use of uniform, like it, um, the red coats of the British army are starting to come in by this point. So it's possible that he just wanted his army to stand out and look different. There's also perhaps a pragmatic element to it in that if his army was generally composed of people from the Highlands, then they would have been wearing this form of dress anyway. He could have just figured, well, it's easier to just say that the few people who are not wearing it should wear it rather than trying to reclothe everybody. Um, but whatever the reasons, Tartan does become inextricably linked with the Jacobite cause. It was, however, still used by the supporters of the government side of the Hanoverians. Um, so it wasn't exclusive by any means, but the Jacobite propaganda machine really takes it up and really runs with it. And um, there's 
lots of surviving material ev evidence for this. There are wanted posters of Bonnie Prince Charlie, and he's drawn in a quite outlandish tartan um, getup, really, really tight tartan breeches and a tight tartan jacket. Um, there's lots of memorial evidence and things that have been associated with Bonnie Prince Charlie, including the jacket in Kelvin Grove, Becky. Yes, that lovely tartan that's supposed to be, interestingly, not his coat, which um, makes me want to believe it a little bit more, but somebody who was in his army and fought at the Battle of Culloden. Unfortunately, though, we have no way of tracing its 18th century history at the moment. We've only got as far back as the 19th century. Oh, it's an, that's an intriguing one. It's a great one. It'd be great to find out if it was actually worn at Culloden. <laughs> I know, particularly as it was then used, um, was famously exhibited in the 19th century as being worn at Culloden. So it has now been written down as the Culloden old set in terms of its tartan. Oh, goodness. Yeah. I've always kind of wondered whether Bonnie Prince Charles also, having come from France and spent a lot of his... Um, childhood most of his life spent on the continent whether he adopted it as just a means of trying to say i am your king i'm not i'm not continental so he adopts the clothing of the people that he's trying to prove himself leader of i think that's i think that's going to have something to do with it as well i agree with you there he because he does He's he's quite savvy is is charles he's not he's not the uh, hapless prince that everyone makes him out to be and I think he's he's inherited some of the propaganda skill of his father and grandfather um, and there's some great accounts of him wearing forms of highland dress it's not necessarily the great plaid all the time but he'll have the blue bonnet and um, velvet breeches and the tartan jacket you know think like mixtures of it that make him that like you say show he's got an affinity with the people that he's coming to say yes we're the rightful kings we're the rightful royal family um, we belong here yeah. And as you say, it was much more widely worn at the time than just in Scotland in the Jacobite army. Although we associate it with the Highland, I always think of those two wonderful figures in a painting that's now in the Royal Collection that shows St. James's Park and the Mall in about 1945, so the time of the Second Uprising. And there's two gentlemen just wandering through the middle of London in their belted plaid. Oh, lovely. I don't, I, don't, I don't know that one. I'm going to have to go and look that one up. It's a lovely example. It's a full mix of people, most of them wearing European fashionable dress, women in their fantastic sack bags. And then in the foreground, there is this two deep in conversation to, um, I'm assuming from the Highlands, but wearing a belted plaid in the middle of London. Brilliant. It's brilliant stuff. And you, around this time, you also see it used a lot as um, fancy dress at masquerade balls as well. Yes, I suppose if you're not from the Highlands, it's always going to be an exotic other, isn't it? Even though it's just from within the same isles. Yes, um, exotic or in the case of the Hanoverians after the Jacobites, threatening. Because the association that the Jacobites managed to create with, the, with tartan and Highland dress was so strong that when they failed at Culloden, dress was part of the retribution system that the Hanoverians brought in against the Jacobites and their supporters. Yes, that act of prescription is such an interesting act, isn't it? Oh, it's, it's what it's trying to do. Yes, I mean, it, it just shows you how political dress is and how all these people that say um, dress is frivolous and fashion doesn't matter and you know it's just about changing style, like it's so much more and I think this is a great example of that because 
the Jacobites were so successful in creating a connection with this, with this, um, with the Great Plague, with the Kilt and with Tartan, that the Hanoverians used it as a means to try and crush any Jacobite support. So along with things like um, Jacobites weren't allowed to carry arms, or Scots weren't allowed to carry arms, and they weren't allowed to congregate in large numbers, they had to swear an oath of allegiance to the king, you weren't also allowed to wear Highland dress in Scotland. So it's it's an it's it's a really intriguing piece of legislation and there are copies of if you're interested in this there are copies and versions of this on online um the scottish tartan authority has the full transcription of it if you want to go and look it up later yes it's very powerful isn't it that no tartan or party colored plaid or stuff shall be used well there's a debate about if tartan is actually banned or not or if it's the form of dress which is banned Yes, because it then goes into be quite specific. So it says for great coats or for upper coats. So does that mean your waistcoat can still be tartan? Yeah, I mean, this is it, this is one of the things I think there are. I, I love talking about this one because there are so many different um, loopholes in it that, yeah, tartan itself doesn't seem to have been banned. It's it's just if you're wearing a party coloured plaid, so party coloured being tartan. So they don't want people wearing the plaid out of tartan, but technically does that mean you could wear a plaid if it was just like grey or black it's it's, it's a really intriguing word document and it's quite an oddly written act in that sometimes it can be quite general and then very specific so no tartan for use for great coats or for upper coats so a waistcoat might be okay you would wouldn't you and it's it's interesting that um as you say this specificity versus the generality of it so it goes from saying um no man or boy within the part of great britain called scotland um so that means that a man or boy outside of scotland could wear it but also women were not excluded and i think that says a lot about how they saw the role of women in active circles at this time they just didn't see women necessarily as a threat um, which I think is really interesting and quite unfair, um, but that's their problem. <laughs> um, yes, and it, go, it goes on to say that the um, the play, the filly bag or little kilt, that could be worn, but this, this ambiguity favour because there are accounts of people in the 1750s and 1760s being arrested for wearing um, these garments and wearing this type of clothing. And they're taken before the, the local sheriff, the local justice of the peace. And there's a sort of, it feels like there's a bit of like a wink, wink culture going on of like, well, no, this isn't my plaid. This is my wife's plaid. So that's allowed. Um, or there were stories of men stitching their kilts up the middle to make what would have looked like, must have looked like a pair of culottes or something. Um, and getting around it that way saying, well, it's not a kilt. It's, it's short, short trousers, shorts. Uh, um, so there's all sorts of ways that it didn't actually work um, in in practice having said that as soon as you ban something that makes people want it more right like yes as soon as you can't have something or as soon as you say that's not allowed um people want to do it more it's like it seems to be the the instant human reaction to it so people i think the ban helps develop this emotional attachment to it more so than there ever was before that it's this idea that somebody's culture and heritage has been taken away from them and then you know people become more um 
more associated to it, they become more emotionally involved with it. And I'm not saying that this is an exaggeration anyway. I think that the act precisely did stuff like this and people were like, well, no, that's ours and we want it and we want to preserve it. And of course, importantly, there's that other loophole in the act, the line that says that those who are employed as officers and soldiers in his majesty's forces will be able to put on Highland clothes and the plaid and all the other bits. So if you sign up to become Hanoverian to the official government, then it's okay for you to then wear it. And that must have a huge impact because it takes the tartan out of the Highlands and by being worn by regiments that are then being sent into the colonies and later on into the British Empire, this is an outfit, a type of clothing, a type of fabric that is then becoming internationally visible. Very much so, and an international symbol of the British Empire as well. So it develops, it, it attracts all these other meanings, which, like you say, going from a uh, uh, something associated with a particular region to almost global in its use um, and the interesting thing is also that at this time in the mid 18th century each regiment's uniform was decided by the colonel of that regiment so he was in charge of saying what he wanted his soldiers to wear and the 18th century is known as the time when uh military uniform becomes more standardized and the colonels want their regiments to look smart and colonels of the highland regiments naturally seem to turn to tartan for this and they say what needs to be worn by each of their soldiers and this means that you've got regiments all wearing the same tartan and that's not necessarily that would something that would have happened before um, but it's standardized and it gives people this sense that tartan comes in groups, it comes in patterns, and that patterns are associated with particular places or particular people, um, even particular events later. So it's it's a really interesting point in how we see tartan compared to Mungo Murray. And it must also have had a, an impact on how the tartan is produced from it being individual orders for one outfit to huge orders to be able to kit out a regiment of soldiers? Um, yeah, in, in, in one way, yes, because you, you're producing huge amounts of cloth compared to just, you know, smaller pieces for individuals. But tartan manufacturers have been producing huge lengths of tartan. Um, they would call them pieces. So there'd be a long, huge, long piece of cloth um, before the development of the regiments. But it does help commercialise tartan manufacture and one of the big ones in Scotland at this time were Wilsons of Bannockburn and they make a lot of money producing tartan for the Highland regiments um, they gain a lot of business from this and there's lots of evidence about um, them developing tartans for regiments and for individual customers too and customers could write in and say I want this kind of tartan but I want it with a bit more red or a bit more yellow and Wilsons obliged and this really counters this popular idea of clan tartans which we which we still have today yes because at this point can't you depending on how much you can afford you could choose what you wanted to wear it was only if you were joining a regiment that it was prescribed as to which set you got absolutely it was that the regimental um environment 
was much more strict and much more controlling. Otherwise, technically, you could wear whatever you wanted. We do know that there were things called district tartans, so tartans which are associated with areas, but they're not clan tartans as we would think of them today. Now there's very much a sense that you are from a particular clan or you're associated with a particular clan, which means you can only wear that type of tartan. Uh, it, that's, a very, that's a relatively modern invention. That really doesn't come about until the 19th century. But before that, you could get tartans associated with areas and with regions. And that would make sense because before you have big cloth manufacturing and centralized production, it would have been produced in a more localized setting. So you've got a weaver who is used to producing a particular pattern. He might only have particular dyes available to him. Um, so that would mean that certain areas might see developments of certain patterns. But again, it doesn't mean that it's a clan tartan like we think of it. So Mungo Murray is not wearing a clan tartan. Yes, that is definitely not a Murray tartan of that. Nope. Of any kind and that also explains some of those wonderfully uh, over-the-top paintings that you get in the mid 18th century where people might be wearing a range of different sets of different checks different colors um, because they can just mix them and match them there is no constraint definitely and there are there are so many examples in the Na Scottish National Portrait Gallery and in Kelvin Grove um, you'll see this and once you start looking for it you'll see it all the time and be like oh those are two different tartans there, sometimes even different colours, which is quite interesting. Yes, and presumably some of these early ones, the earliest uniform I can think of actually is before the Highland regiments, it is the Company of Archers. And you can see similarities between the tartan that is being used, but they still haven't completely codified that set. So you can also see between the different ones being that survived from the 18th century, they are red and green, but they are just very slightly different to each one. And it's, it's not until maybe the, the end of the 18th century when things start to change and we do start to see more codifying and regulation of what pattern is what and what set is what. And it's interesting to think as to kind of what changed then at that point that they decided to in some ways freeze the frame because before then it is evolving it is moving and at what point is it the beginning of an antiquarian interest that they start to kind of write things down and things almost get set in stone i think you hit the nail on the head there with the word antiquarian because i think it's part of a wider movement isn't it from the mid to late 18th century this like, like looking back to the past and we we as a society often do it today as well like this idea that there's a golden age looking back into the past when life was simpler and better than people were better um i think that might be part of it and wrapped up in that is also this this idea that after culloden highland the highland way of life was threatened by the acts of prescription and you get noticeably expats Scots in London who were concerned about this. Um, they're not concerned enough to go and live in Scotland again. They stay in London most of the time, but they're concerned with protecting the Highland identity and the Highland culture as they see it. And that's where we start to see um, this idea that tartan should be organized and um, separated out into the different sets and the different patterns according to clan and region. And the Highland Society of London are one of the, the great instigators of this and they they ask for clan chiefs to send in 
tartan clan tartan so they can preserve it in a register and for posterity and make sure that it doesn't get lost in the annals of time uh, so you can see that yes coming in being written down and a name attached to it yeah cl that classification for antiquarians and myself as a curator we'd love to do <laughs> yes i mean it's very helpful it's really useful they've, they've left they've left a great paper trail and what is great is that a lot some there's some examples of clan chiefs who didn't know what their tartan was so they wrote to wilson's of bannockburn the tartan manufacturers to ask them could you send us a sample of the clan tartan and Bannock, wilson's would be like well no because you don't have one um but here to have this one instead and bob's your uncle you've got a clan tartan and it still goes on today isn't it you can register new tartans even today even today is as long as it is a unique pattern anybody at all can register a tartan and i think it's so it's, it's almost like it's a the best of both worlds like you say today is it can still evolve um and it can still change but it's got that we've inherited that desire for classification from people like the Highland Society of London to, to keep things in line. And there's still a element of regiment to it because you need to classify the names and you need to, um, it, people want that the tartan register keeps control over what is a classified tartan, but absolutely but anybody can do it. So it's kind of controlled, but open at the same time. Yes, that's quite an interesting notion, isn't it? But it does enable it to be something that's Scottish, but also open to new Scots, new identities, diversity of identity. Even superheroes, even superheroes can have a, have a tartan. <laughs> and talking of superheroes, going back to our uh, early 19th century, so we've had this whole big romanticism. And then there's one famous monarch, isn't there, who even arrives in Scotland and dresses up for the occasion. Oh, he does. And it, it's glorious. George the fourth in 1822, he has, it, it, it's quite, it's quite a spectacle. Um, and the, the lasting impact on what we consider Highland dress, I think can be, is, is, is significant. So he visits Edinburgh and he's the first reigning monarch in over 150 years, I think, something like that to visit Scotland. Um, so this is a significant event and it's also long enough after the Jacobite rebellion that um, it's safe. There's, there's, no, there's no fear of a Jacobite rising again necessarily. Prince Charles dies in the 1780s. So that threat has gone. Um, and so this idea of tartan and Jacobite, um, tartan and Highland dress being a rebellious thing that idea has kind of faded away a bit and it's it feeds into that idea of what I was talking about a minute ago about going back to an idealized past and it's the glory age and tartan and highland dress represent a simpler time when um and people want to associate with that um so there's that element coming in you've also still got the highland regiments being very visible um this is only seven years after the battle of waterloo um it's the, the Peninsula Wars where they were very prominent. So there's still a Highland Regiment presence um, and Tartan and Highland Dress coming through from that. And then of course, you've got the Wizard of the North, Sir Walter Scott throwing his hat into the ring and basically dictating what happens and what Scotland should look like to 
the king and the wider stage. Uh, it's such a perfect mix, isn't it? I suppose, yes, you've had a couple of generations since the last time people wearing tartan and highland dress were a threat to the British monarch. Since then, they have actually been there helping spread British power. Mm -hmm. um, so this wonderful idea, then tied with nostalgia, there were very few people who would have been around to remember the, the cause of the 1740s whole new generations just looking to I suppose a collective nostalgia and of course at the climax of it you've got George the fourth who loved his clothes he spent so much money and was often in debt and quite often having to go to parliament to get more money the reason he was forced into a marriage with Caroline of Brunswick was to try and pay off the debts and his coronation was the most expensive coronation ever 200,000 pounds at the time so you can see this boy who, since a young man, had liked creating costumes, used to design his own uniforms. He must have relished this opportunity to get dressed in yet another type of outfit. Yes, so it seems that George IV really embraced this Highland identity and he had an incredible outfit made for him, which, um, true to form, um, was extravagant and expensive and it consisted of a kilt a jacket and a plaid um, he also had a bonnet which was encrusted with jewels he had a sporran that was lined with silk he had gold shoe buckles with saint andrew who's the patron saint of scotland um, gold brooches gold rosettes he had the full shebang um, including an emerald encrusted hilt on his dirk um, a pair of pistols broadsword everything. The suit itself um, was made out of satin velvet and cashmere tartan which just sounds amazing um, and it was made by George Hunter and Co of Edinburgh costing in total £1,350 at the time which today is worth approximately £58,000. So this is a far cry from the practical, humble, simple dress of the Highlander. And it even puts Mungo Murray's outfit to shame, I think, in terms of extravagance. Yes, I mean, Mungo Murray's would have cost a huge amount at the time. Uh, when you look at all that fantastic quality wool the, the, for the plaid, for the doublet, plus the embroidery, plus the linen and the lace, but nothing compared to George IV spending. No, I mean, cashmere tartan I mean it sounds lovely <laughs> just, just very expensive and of course if you want to see a very um, idealized depiction of him in this outfit there is a portrait of him by David Wilkie which is in the Royal Collection um, and I think it's on display in Holyrood Palace um, which is worth looking at because it's, it's, it's a very flattering portrait of George IV because as we know George IV was on the larger side of he, the he was he was having, uh, pre in a previous curatorial life, mounted his breeches, which Ooh. had a waist of 133 centimetres, 66 inches. Um, those portraits are definitely flattering. <laughs> well, so, I mean, this, this might explain why um, there's one of my favourite stories about George IV and his visit to Edinburgh. So he has this extravagant extravagant outfit made up for him and as as a as a child we know he wore 
various versions of Highland dress. Um, there's accounts of him wearing it at various points in his life. So this isn't the first time he's worn it, but it's possibly the first time that he's worn it as king. Um, and it, he may, was perhaps a bit self-conscious because he didn't want to just wear the kilt and expose his knees. So apparently he wore flesh-coloured tights underneath, which rather spoiled the effect somewhat and left him open to ridicule. Um, so he didn't fully embrace the whole Highland aesthetic. He sort of went halfway. Uh, so 15-year-old Lord Mungo Murray was more of a man than, than lovely George IV. Just, just perhaps more daring and willing to brave the elements. <laughs> but yeah, George IV didn't want to expose the royal knees, um, which, which I think is, is just a great anecdote of royal history and tartan coming together. Um, the, the event itself, his visit to Edinburgh, is really important for the growth of tartan and Highland dress. And you see elements of this today in modern Highland dress, like the short jacket. Some jackets often have a sort of higher collar. There's, there's a very, um, there's, there's, there can be quite a clear link with the Regency aesthetic um, that this visit portrayed and developed with modern Highland dress. And certainly the form of the kilt just being one piece of material that's um, pleated extravagantly around the waist, the sporran, um, all the accoutrements that go with it, the, the, the standardization that Queen Victoria and the Victorians really run with starts with this visit in 1822. Yes, it really does kind of start to create a, almost a fossilization of the dress that leads through to the formal outfits that we see today being worn for Scottish weddings. Yeah, definitely. There's, there's, and that's what I love about it. There is a real clear link. And I love that you can go so far back into history. You can go back to 1680 and look at Mungo Murray. And even though he looks completely different to what you would see in Highland dress today, you can, you can see how it's developed from that. And when you throw in the mix of political history, gender history economic social history and you throw all of that in it's 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 a really interesting story yes and you can see both elements if you see him there as a soldier then we've still got the tartan in the dress uniforms in the kind of more flamboyant not the combat uniforms in the highland regiment and if we want to see it as highland now scottish identity then you can see that from the full wedding outfit right the way through to the informal wearing of kilts by the army, the Scottish Tartan army following the football. Yes, Tartan serves all purposes and all occasions. It's a good all-rounder. <laughs> That's all we have time for in this episode of Glasgow Museum's podcast. If you've enjoyed and wanted to hear more, you can from episodes available on Apple, Spotify, Google Podcasts and on SoundCloud too. Just look for Glasgow Museum's Until next time, thanks for listening.